Welcome to the Wayside Podcast. I'm Robert Killingsworth. The audio for this episode comes from a sermon that was given during one of our Sunday services. We hope you are encouraged and inspired by today's word. Today is the second week of our three-week series called Breath of Heaven, and we're talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We began last week on Pentecost with Jane showing us how the Holy Spirit was poured out to individuals in the story about how individuals were to help Moses lead God's people in the midst of, and this was my favorite phrase from her sermon, this is my favorite phrase all week, in the midst of the great quail debacle. (laughs) If something can be used both as the title of a sermon and also as Gordon Ramsay's response to some kind of dish on a cooking show, you know you've got gold, so run with that. One of Jane's most astute observations, and one that stuck with me through the week, was that in this story in Numbers chapter 11, it was an example of what happens when the Spirit of God is poured out on infertile soil. Well, to extend the metaphor just a little bit more this morning, today we're going to be looking at what things should look like when Jesus, the master gardener, prepares the soil. And then next week, Naomi Sindara is going to be finishing up our series by looking at what grows from that soil. Okay, so agricultural metaphor is over, but that's what's ahead this week and next. So today I have the unenviable task of the middle chapter of the trilogy. The middle of the story is usually where things either get really good or really bad, right? So for every Empire Strikes Back, there's a Last Jedi, right? (laughs) You nerds know what I'm talking about. For every season two of The Office, there's season two of Friday Night Lights, For every Toy Story 2, there's all those direct-to-video sequels that Disney did in the 90s. Remember Aladdin 2? No Robin Williams, but the voice of Homer Simpson as the genie? (laughs) Better forgotten than remembered. So that's my task this morning. And so I wanted us to look at what happens in Matthew 28. See, in today's gospel reading, we see Jesus sending out his disciples into the world. And his call to his disciples, his job for his disciples, echoes the mission that God gives to humanity in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, God creates all things, and then he creates human beings as the caretakers of his creation. All of creation is good, but human beings are very good. He creates people to be his images. Another way of saying that is, if he's the king, They're supposed to be his vice regents or his representatives in the world. When someone sees a human being, they're supposed to think of God. So God creates them male and female and tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So then we get to what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28. He gives his disciples a job. And this is known as the Great Commission. Just like the first people had a job to represent God to the creation, Jesus' disciples are now supposed to represent God to the creation. They're supposed to fill the earth with other disciples, those who follow Jesus' commands and worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how does this, how does this tie in to the series that we're in on the person and work of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's the obvious angle, right, that people are baptized into or being made part of the family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's the promise that Jesus makes them, a promise fulfilled at Pentecost, that he will be with them, right, through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, who Paul calls in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of Christ. But 
I want to approach it from a slightly different angle this morning. And I think, at least I hope, all of this is going to come together. What I want to start with is the question, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? That's the million-dollar question. That's what everybody wants to know as soon as you start talking about the Holy Spirit. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? Now, sometimes in sermons, we wait until the very end to give the answer so that you'll stay listening the whole time. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you the answer now in hopes that you'll continue to listen. But here's the answer. Jesus says that disciples are to obey everything I have commanded you. So how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? If you have the Holy Spirit, your life will be marked by obedience. And there's another sign that's tied in with that, and it's conviction of sin. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will feel guilt when you disobey Jesus. Somewhere along the line, someone, I blame psychologists, they tried to convince us that feeling guilty was a bad thing. Now, this went in two devastating directions. First, some people live life without a conscience. They give interviews where they say things like, I've never felt the need to ask for forgiveness. This is the reality television pathway. Eliminate guilt, and everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. But there's another way that this goes when someone tries to convince you that all guilt is toxic. The second way that it can go wrong is for the person who can't escape their guilt, those who have tender consciences. They feel guilty, and then somebody tells them that you shouldn't feel guilty, and then they feel guilty about feeling guilty, and it snowballs, and they feel worse and worse. If the other one was the reality television pathway, this is the neurotic stand-up comedian pathway. <laughs> In reality, there's only one kind of person who should feel guilty, someone who is guilty, right? You shouldn't feel guilty when you're not guilty. Some of us feel guilty for mistakes or just for human frailty, but there's a big difference between overcooking the dinner and poisoning the soup. Okay? I'm willing to bet, though, I'm willing to bet that sometime in the past week, you've done something that you feel legitimately guilty about. You shouldn't have to think very hard. In the Book of Common Prayer, we find what's called the general confession of sin. And one of the things that we confess is that we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own heart. Go to the previous one, devices and desires. Despair and disillusionment's coming up. There's a lot of alliteration this morning. I'm turning Baptist on you. So the de- we followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. What does this mean? It's an acknowledgement that the highest good in life is not being true to yourself, no matter what Disney movies try to tell you. In fact, being true to yourself is often the path that leads to all kinds of pain for you and for other people. See, in theology, we have this thing called the noetic effects of sin. And what that means is that when our first parents, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, it didn't just poison their bodies. It poisoned their minds and it poisoned their affections. Sometimes we want things that are good, but we want to achieve them in ways that are dishonest. Students, you are tempted by this all the time, even before ChatGPT was out there, to tempt you to have it write your essays for you. You're tempted to find shortcuts to actually doing the work in order to achieve the grade you wanted. Everyone wants the A, the symbol of learning, but more than, more than they want to actually do the learning. That's what it means by devices. Devices are a problem of means, right? Using the wrong means. Desires are a problem of ends. The desires are things that are inherently wicked, things like vengeance 
or wanting other people to suffer, wanting power over other people, wanting to be the savior of other people, treating others in a dehumanizing way, desiring pleasure or material success at any cost. That's disordered desire. Now, lest you think that this language of disordered devices and desires is the unique product of repressive Christian guilt, let me remind you that you live in 2023. We live in this strange time where the prevailing ethos is at the same time um, relativistic and moralistic. What do I mean by that? I mean, it wouldn't be odd for you to hear somebody say, no one's beliefs are superior to any others, except if you don't agree with me, you're wicked and evil and irredeemable and you should be crushed. We live in the most moralistic age since the Victorians. We're just afraid to admit it. We don't acknowledge it. Sometimes, some of what you hear actually sounds vaguely Christian, right? They're simply different things to repent of. Both traditional Christian morality and modern morality say, you will never know how deep the rot goes. Your heart is more wicked than you ever feared. The typical place that this leaves us is in despair, and disillusionment. There was a relatively famous author who has made a ton of money, a ton of money, telling well-meaning people just how awful they are. And when someone feels, feels hurt by this and asks how they can change and make a difference, this is what she says to them. This is from an interview. When they ask me, what do I do? I have to ask a couple questions back. The first thing is, how have you managed not to know? It's the current year. Why is that your question? How have you managed not to know what to do when good information is everywhere and people have been trying to tell you forever? That's not a serious response. That's someone who wants to keep getting paid, right? You should be beware of prophets who don't love you and who don't want better for you. One of the most oppressive things, and this is really true for students, one of the most oppressive things about living today is what's come to be known as cancel culture. People's careers are ruined, their safety threatened, their reputation shot with, and here's the really important thing, with no chance for redemption. Say the wrong thing, like the wrong post, befriend the wrong people, and you too could be next. But here is the scandal of the gospel. And this is what sets Christianity apart from our age. You can have said the most vile thing done the most hideous wrong, taken up with the worst kind of people, and yet you are not too far from God's love. You're not. That's why grace is scandalous. Somehow God can forgive what we struggle to. The morality of our day offers all of the sin, but none of the forgiveness. So during the most vile injustice ever committed, the crucifixion of Jesus, what does he say? Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Only one of the disciples doesn't run away from the crucifixion. And yet, Jesus gives the great commission to all of them. He brings them back into the fold. The disciple who disowns him, he restores. The chief prosecutor who went after his people, he makes him his most effective evangelist. He takes those who are dead and he gives them life. God doesn't cancel sinners. He adopts them. It's not for no reason that the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of adoption. Earlier, I said that the life of someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit should be marked by obedience. But I didn't explain what that obedience looks like. 
It's not slavishly doing what God has commanded and hopes that he will then love you and accept you. When Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he doesn't mean get your act together because you're letting God down. What he means is, your heavenly father is perfect. You have been adopted as children of God. So live like your father. The the great hymn writer and poet William Cooper wrote, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So this is, this is the last bit of my alliteration this morning. We had devices and desires, and then we had despair and disillusionment. And we've got one more, and it's what the life of a disciple should look like, the life empowered by the Spirit. It should be a life of duty and delight. Let me give you a pretty common example of how somebody might do this. The most common expletive in our culture is not a four-letter word. Not even that one. The most common expletive, this is church, shame on you. The most common expletive in our culture is the name of Jesus Christ, right? When somebody gets upset and they say Jesus Christ because they're disgusted or they're surprised or they're upset. And it's a violation of the third commandment, right? What does the third commandment say? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, that's not the only thing that the third commandment forbids. It's also when you try to pass off your own idea as that God told you something when it's really just you that came up with it. That's also a violation of the third commandment. But using Jesus Christ as a way to express shock or disgust is so common that it's become reflexive for many people in our culture. So much so, much so that even Christian kids have a hard time understanding why we don't do that. But we don't do that. The name of Jesus is one that we should treasure So yes, it's important to train your children not to use Jesus' name as an expletive in the hope that one day they would come to love the name of Jesus so much that his name on their lips would always be in the context of praise. And of course, I'm saying children, but I mean you and me as well. Now that's a duty. Yes, that's a duty. It's a responsibility. We have a duty to keep the commandment against using the Lord's name in vain. And yet, it shouldn't be an onerous thing. We should come to delight in praising God's name because he is our God and we are his people. Let's use one more of the commandments. I thought about number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. I decided not to. I'm going to move on to eight, but you can apply it to all 10. So the eighth commandment is you shall not steal. So let's bring this into the context of work. Let's say that one afternoon you go to your boss and say, boss, I'm going to be honest with you. When I left your office this morning, I was pretty upset with you. You were pretty negative about my job performance. You said some harsh things that really wounded me. All that to say, I wasn't very delighted with you. And so at lunchtime, I sent a list of our sales leads to our biggest competitor. Your boss's response will not be, well, thank goodness you were being true to yourself. (laughs) No, no. That one act loses you your job, Your finances, this is America, of course you're going to get your pantsuit off, and it loses you your reputation. You will have a hard time working again, at least not in that same field. So yes, you should do your job joyfully, but you should still do your job in the moments when you aren't finding joy. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. He was describing to a friend the difference between our upside-down world 
and the right-side-up world of the kingdom of God. So do you want to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life? How he is helping you to mature, or to use the theological term, sanctifying you. It's in finding joy in obedience. Those people who we recognize as saints, whether historic saints like St. Martin, or people in our own lives who seem unnaturally holy, what marks those people more than finding joy in the midst of suffering or finding delight in the midst of their duty? I hope there's somebody in your life who exemplifies that for you. Someone who cares for you with no thought to their own inconvenience. Just want you to think about that person just for a minute. They may be here with you. They may be far away. They may be in heaven. Thank God for them and ask that he would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help you to grow to love in that kind of extravagant way. And if you can't think of anyone, know that you have a God who loves you more than you could possibly know. He has adopted you into his family and given you the title of beloved son or cherished daughter. So live out of that love. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. The Wayside Podcast is a ministry of St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. It was created by Ryan Presley and the Reverend Wesley Arning. It is executive produced by Robert Killingsworth. The theme music was written and recorded by Robert Killingsworth. If you're interested in life at St. Martin's, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at St. Martin's Episcopal Church.